0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note this episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. On July 23rd, 1995, two men in two different states looked up to the same sky and discovered the very same thing. Alan Hale in New Mexico and Thomas Bopp in Arizona spotted a comet that was not listed on any of the sky charts that they had. Both of them reported their observation to the International Astronomical Union and both were credited with discovering C-1995-1995 or what is now known as the Hale-Bopp Comet. Because the comet was so bright, it could be seen with a regular telescope. And at that time, it was the farthest comet ever to be discovered by amateurs. And for 18 months, you did not even need a telescope to see Hale-Bopp. It was astonishingly bright, making it visible to the naked eye. In November of 1996, an amateur astronomer in Houston, Texas, took a picture of the comet that revealed a long, fuzzy object that appeared to be following the Hale-Bopp. He claimed that he had discovered a quote Saturn-like object which UFO enthusiasts declared was an alien spacecraft following the comet. One group of believers were following the path of the comet very carefully and were confident that it was not just an alien spacecraft. It was their ticket to heaven. And in March of 1997, as the comet soared closest to Earth, Thirty-nine women and men drank a deadly cocktail of phenobarbital and vodka and dreamed of leaving their body and ascending to the ship. They were determined to catch their ride, even if they had to die to do it. As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Allshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? From Wondery and Treefort, Fort, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is the second season of Killer Psyche. I've spent five decades studying people's minds through my work as an FBI profiler and psychiatric nurse. I've interviewed lots of murderers, including serial killers. And the question of why they did it is what I get asked time and time again. It is difficult to get a satisfying answer without diving deep into their mindsets. So that's what we're doing and I will give you my best analysis in this series of what made them do what they did. This episode is Heaven's Gate. In the upscale San Diego neighborhood of Rancho Santa Fe, 39 members of a religious group known after many name changes as Heaven's Gate were hard at work filming videos for their family and friends. They sat in plastic chairs in the backyard of their least Spanish-style mansion and recorded two at a time, side by side. But this was not to bring their loved ones up to date on their lives. No. These messages were farewells. Some addressed to family and friends that they had not spoken with in more than 15 years. The members were all eerily similar. Both men and women had the same cropped sugar bowl type haircut and long sleeve baggy shirts. They appeared uniform and genderless. At times, their voices cracked with emotion but mostly they were gleeful. After 22 years, the group said it was graduating from its earthly classroom and soaring to the kingdom of heaven. In their recordings, they announced that the time had come to shed their vehicles, the physical bodies they occupied on earth, so their souls could return to their maker. Since the inception of the group in 1975, they believed that once their minds and bodies had completed a next-level metamorphosis, a spaceship would appear and take them back to their celestial home, which was their interpretation of heaven. So when the Hale-Bopp comet appeared, followed by a supposed UFO, the group's 65-year-old leader, Doe, proclaimed that this was the sign that they had been waiting for. The date was set, March 22nd, 1997. That was the day the comet would be closest to the Earth, and that was the day they would finally ascend to a higher plane. So, starting at 7.20 p.m. on that date, March 22nd and continuing every few minutes until 8.49 p.m., all 39 members signed out of the group's daily log. For years, every time a member left their home base, they would record their name, the time they left, how much money they carried, and their expected time of return. But on that day, instead of a return time, Members filled that column with question marks, dashes, or parting phrases like, So long, never, and hasta la vista. Then, 15 members of the group swallowed several teaspoons of applesauce or pudding laced with phenobarbital and washed it down with vodka. They covered their heads with plastic bags secured with elastic bands, they lay down on one of the many mattresses or bunk beds throughout the house and place their arms peacefully at their side. Once a member passed away, other members of the group removed the plastic bags and covered the dead with a three-foot-by-three-foot purple cloth over their face and chest. On Monday morning, March 24th, members who were still alive posted a large, flashing red alert notice on their Higher Source website. It warned all humans on Earth that the Hale-Bopp comet, quote, brings closure to Heaven's Gate. After posting the alert, a second shift of 15 Heaven's Gate members swallowed the deadly mixture. Their leader Doe was in this second shift. His final resting place was the king-sized bed in the master bedroom. On Tuesday, March 25th, the remaining nine members followed the others to their deaths. On that Tuesday, Rio D'Angelo, a former Heavenscape member received a FedEx at his Los Angeles workplace. He waited until that evening to open the package, which contained a letter from Doe and two videotapes. The next morning, Rio told his boss, Nick, that he thought the group was dead. He asked Nick to drive him to the Santa Fe property. When he entered the house... Rio called out to anyone who might still be alive. There was no response. 20 minutes later, Rio exited the house white as a sheet. He told his boss, quote, they did it. They left their containers. Rio then made an anonymous call to 911 reporting the mass suicide. A San Diego sheriff's deputy was the first officer to respond to the scene. Believing the call might be a prank, the deputy arrived at two hours after the anonymous call. When the sheriff's deputy entered a side door, he was immediately hit with the pungent odor of decaying bodies. He called for backup, which arrived within minutes. After counting 10 bodies, the two officers left the house to put on surgical masks and gloves. They re-entered and checked all 39 bodies for vital signs. The officers were so overcome by the noxious fumes, they had to be taken to the emergency room. Additional law enforcement units and technicians, wearing gas masks, combed through the house. There were no noticeable signs of blood or trauma. All the bodies lay on mattresses, bunk beds, or cots, their arms peacefully at their sides. The house was immaculately clean. The androgynous appearance and decomposition of the bodies led police to believe that the victims were all men. But the group was actually made up of 21 women and 18 men. And even more puzzling, six of the male members had been castrated. All 39 members were dressed in matching black sweatpants and black shirts with an arm patch on the sleeve that read, Heaven's Gate Away Team. They also wore brand-new black Nike sneakers with a white swoosh. Inside each person's pockets, police found a driver's license, birth certificate or passport, a spiral notebook, lip balm, a $5 bill, and 75 cents in quarters. A small personal travel bag was at the foot of each mattress. All bodies, except for two, were covered with purple shrouds. The last two members to die did not have shrouds, but had plastic bags over their heads, secured with elastic bands. Police found handwritten recipes for mixing and taking the phenobarbital and vodka cocktail. After autopsies were performed, the San Diego County Medical Examiner reported the cause of death for almost all victims was suffocation. Only three had lethal levels of phenobarbital in their systems. Though many reporting on this tragedy later said This was the largest mass suicide on record in the United States. The 39 members of Heaven's Gate would have disagreed. They believed suicide would keep you here on Earth. They called what they were doing the exit. But I tend to agree with the chief investigator on the case, who deemed it, quote, 38 murders. And one suicide. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. Its advanced technology protects every room, window, and door of your home while cameras keep watch for suspicious activity 24 7 all for less than a dollar a day. And there's no long-term contract, ever. I love SimpliSafe because it's so straightforward and easy to install. Knowing that my home is protected 24-7 gives me so much peace of mind. It's great that I can always check on my home through the app on my phone. Protect your home today. My listeners get a special 20% off any new SimpliSafe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com slash Psyche. That's simplysafe.com slash Psyche. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
1: Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash wondery, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Wondery.
0: As you know, in Act Two of Killer Psyche, I usually explain the behavior, motivation, and psychology of the killer. But in today's episode, I'm going to digress. The story, or perhaps I should say stories plural, behind T and Doe and their followers, well, they're vast and they're complicated. There are way too many of them to delve into in such a short time. But it is 100% true that Marshall Herf Applewhite was the leader of the Heaven's Gate cult. But I don't think his story or tease needs too much explanation. For me, the real story, what I was really curious about is the victims. His followers, they were not mentally ill. He was. But by way of explanation, let's take a brief look at Herf because it is he who gets all the blame for everyone else's death. All 38 of them. Marshall Herff Applewhite Jr., or Herff, was born on May 17, 1932, in Spur, Texas. He was the second of four children born to Marshall Herff Applewhite Sr., a well-known Presbyterian minister, and his wife. He graduated from college in 1952 with a degree in philosophy. Herf married his high school sweetheart that same year. She was also from a deeply religious family. The couple moved to Virginia, where Herf enrolled in seminary school. He left the school early to become the music director of a Presbyterian church in Gastonia, North Carolina. While well, there in 1953, Herf's son was born. A year later, Herf was drafted, and when he completed his service, Herf moved the family to Denver and earned a master's degree in music and musical theater at the University of Colorado. He was an extremely talented vocalist, known for his baritone voice, and he became a star in Denver's local musical theater. In 1960, the same year his daughter was born, Herf took a job teaching music at the University of Alabama. But four years later, Herf was fired after having an affair with a male student. When his wife found out about his secret sex life with men, she abruptly left him taking her two children with her back to Texas. He had to tell his parents why his wife left him, so in his misery, he decided to, quote, get it over with and come out to everyone important to him. And his father was at the top of that list. Now, what about her father? Well, He was a highly successful and well-regarded pastor of what today we call a super church. He had a huge following. Hurf Sr. had always been a guiding light in Hurf's life as well as a profoundly important source of comfort and love. He loved and respected his father immensely. And even in his 30s, He needed his father's approval. So, when Herff revealed his secret, forbidden in the eyes of the church, he may have thought his dad, being a man of God, would forgive him. Everything would be okay, and therefore, he would be okay. But he could not have been more wrong. Now, remember This was in an era when the word homosexual was not even spoken. Allegedly, the words his father actually said to him were, quote, What kind of sins have I committed that God has so scorned me? Okay, so I think we might be starting to hit on the problem. You see where this is going? Applewhite soon found another job as a music professor at a private Catholic college in Houston. From 1966 to 1970, he performed in 15 different roles at the Houston Grand Opera. And for a brief time, Herf lived an openly gay lifestyle. In 1970, he finally got his big break the lead baritone in the American opera, The Ballad of Baby Doe. Unfortunately, Herf never performed the role. He handed the Houston Grand Opera choirmaster a letter from his psychiatrist and withdrew from the production. The choirmaster recounted that Applewhite, quote, felt the part was too much for him and He was cited for health problems of an emotional nature. At age 33, he resigned his professorship after school administrators learned he had an affair with a male student. Though I suspect he was given the offer to resign or be fired this loss was now the third source of comfort, stability, and acceptance that he lost in a fairly short amount of time. Not surprisingly, he spiraled down into a serious depression, high anxiety, hopelessness, and mental instability. Can this happen to anyone? Yes, it can. Look at what happened psychologically. Herf had become, well, untethered from his brilliant and promising future. And his father had completely and utterly rejected him. When his father died in 1971, Herf spiraled into a deep, deep depression. He decided to change his life. So, he cut all ties with his past and hit the road. While traveling in New Mexico, he began hearing voices and having visions and later described himself as being tormented. He was exhausted physically, mentally, and emotionally. He recounted later that he was having, quote, weird spiritual experiences, cracking under pressure, and he became even more anxious and eventually suicidal. He was soon admitted to a hospital for either chest pains or suicidal ideation. Why do I say that? Well, because there are various accounts of the reason for the hospitalization. He said he was visiting a sick friend there, but he stayed a while. His older sister Louise maintained he had suffered a near-death heart attack blockage, while others believe he sought help in suppressing his homosexuality, which would have been, in those days, a psychiatric admission. Regardless of the reason, this is the hospital where 40-year-old Marshall herf Applewhite met 45-year-old registered nurse, Bonnie Lou Nettles. Bonnie grew up in a Baptist home, went to nursing school, married, and became the mother of four children. She studied the Bible, astrology, theosophy, and New Age thinking. Bonnie conducted seances and claimed to take counsel from a deceased 19th century monk named Brother Francis. Oh, brother. When Nettles met Applewhite, she asked him for his birth certificate so that she could do his astrological chart. She convinced him that he was meant for something great, a divine assignment. She also felt the two of them had known each other in a past life and were meant to go on a mystical journey together. Herve confided in his sister that while in the hospital, he had a near-death experience. He went on to tell her that he met a nurse named Bonnie who told him, quote, "'I'm sure God brought you back for a reason. "'It's not that you're going crazy. "'It's not that you're sick. "'You're not a failure.' You just haven't met me yet. Meaning, I have the answers you need. But Bonnie herself had mental issues, very serious ones. But despite her own mental problems, she was still stronger than Herf in every way. In Herf's highly suggestible state of mind, and I can tell you, people that are psychotic can be easily influenced. He embraced all of Bonnie's bizarre beliefs as his own. She truly believed that they would be transported from planet Earth right through the gates of heaven. She spoon-fed him her own delusions, and Herf embraced her beliefs as a blueprint for their own path forward together. Finally, his life had clarity once again. She left her four children to be with him on his vision quest, but their bond was not romantic or sexual. Herf had adopted the concept that to get into heaven, one must be pure in the eyes of God. And in his mind, sex precluded purity. That actually makes perfect sense to me regarding him but not in the biblical sense. It makes sense because of Herf’s own sexual history. Sex with the wrong person had ruined his life, so giving it up altogether would keep him out of trouble. In short, he didn't trust himself, so he made celibacy a virtue, and as we learned earlier, eventually a requirement. In January of 73, the two of them decided to go out in the world and find their mission. In doing this, they consciously abandoned their families. Bonnie met with her 19-year-old daughter and 13-year-old son to say goodbye. This was the last time they would ever see her. In July, while camping along the Rogue River on the Oregon coast, they believed God finally revealed their purpose. Something they saw in the night sky convinced them that what the Bible called a cloud was actually a spaceship. And like the Bible prophesies, they predicted that they would be martyred and resurrected. They began to refer to themselves as The Two, or Doe and Tea, reflecting Herf's musical background and Bonnie's love of the musical The Sound of Music. Other names they used were Bo and Peep, Guinea and Pig. Their names always reflected that they were a pair. Herf even cut Bonnie's hair in the same fashion as his. Their beliefs were a combination of Christianity, Armageddon, UFO enthusiasm, and themes from popular science fiction books. Doe also believed the personal sexual turmoil he had experienced was the result of his bodies coming under the influence of a being from the next level, and the discovery that he was one of The two. A significant turning point for Doe and T occurred on September 14, 1975. They organized a meeting in Waldport, Oregon. Prior to the meeting, they hung flyers, teasing their message: quote, UFOs, why are they here? Who have they come for? When will they leave? almost 200 people showed up. Doe and T introduced themselves as the two and told the audience that a spaceship was coming to take them to heaven. They said that they were not humans, but aliens trapped in human bodies. They warned that the world was about to be recycled and only those boarding the spaceship would be saved. Their objective was to find an eternity. An explicit draw to what they were pitching was that you did not have to die to go to heaven. Possession of a living physical body was required to board the spacecraft. However, there was a physical and chemical transformation your body would go through and your body would be resuscitated in space. It was a process they called human individual metamorphosis, or H-I-M. But in order to successfully complete the metamorphosis, a complete break with your past was necessary. Does that appeal to you? Well, it appealed to 25 people from the meeting. They cut ties with their jobs, their families, and property and followed Doe and T to a Colorado campsite. The members pooled their resources for food. They took re education classes from Doe and T. Physical touching and romance were prohibited. They adopted unisex appearances. Doe and T said this was necessary to remove themselves from their human vehicles and to prepare them for the genderless next level. Anyone who wanted to leave was free to do so, but those who stayed at camp, and it was called Central, had to follow the rules. What were the rules? No sex, no drugs, no alcohol, no caffeine, no kids. Doe said children are not eligible because the decision to go on the spaceship must be made by each individual. Followers at the campsite had to check in with Doe or T every 12 minutes and work on meditation, which would connect their mind to the next level. Everyone was assigned a, quote, check partner to make sure they abided by the rules. Doubters were sent to a, get a load of this, decontamination zone. But the spaceship they expected was a no-show. So HIM, Human Individual Metamorphosis, constantly moved around staying mostly in camping sites, anticipating the spaceship's arrival. They would get up at dawn, forage for food, and pass out literature to other Earthlings. The success at the Waldeport recruitment meeting had attracted media attention. Adherents swelled to almost 200. In the fall of 1975, the cult had been infiltrated by two sociologists. In 1976, one of those sociologists, Robert Balsh, published his observations on the HIM in Psychology Today. Doe and T became a laughingstock around the country. The cult lost half of its members. But that only caused Doe and T to be more nomadic and secretive about their whereabouts. So what about those followers? As I mentioned, I find their story more interesting. Were they all seriously mentally ill as well? That they would think if they followed the strict and, dare I say, outrageous guidelines of Herf and Bonnie, even castrating themselves, that a UFO would someday transport them to the gates of heaven? And these very intelligent, talented, successful people believed all of their leaders' teachings without any proof at all to a point of killing themselves? Yes, they did believe it. And no, They were not mentally ill at all. In fact, they were not even disturbed. So then, how did this happen? Was Herf just a really great con man? A criminal to his very core? No, I don't think he was a con man at all. He was truly, seriously ill, as I described earlier. Many cult leaders are not ill. In fact, most of them are not. But Herf was. So then, how did he influence these otherwise normal people to live in day-to-day conditions that would not even be allowed in a prison? Such as sleeping three people to a bed in eight-hour shifts, toileting in front of other people, and smiling. Whenever they were told to do so. And yet, they were all compliant and no one complained. Any one of them could leave anytime they wanted. That is not in dispute. They were free to leave, but were their minds their own? Did they really have free will? Experts say no, not likely. When it comes to cults, the concept of free will can be very much a gray area. According to Dr. Alan Jern, in an article published in Psychology Today, researchers of cults have known for some time that the concept of free will is uh, questionable. Thanks largely to psychologist Robert Cialdini, There are a number of factors we know that make people more persuadable. You remember I mentioned a psychologist that infiltrated the group in the 70s, Robert Balch? Well, he wrote that the group did not use brainwashing and was very much about free choice, but that did not mean the leaders were not acting like salespeople. Employing time-tested psychological persuasion principles To win over more converts. First, liking. People are more persuaded by people they like. And what we know about Doe, he was nothing if not charming and charismatic. Secondly, scarcity. At the core of the Heaven's Gate theology was the belief that humanity was about to move on to the next level of its evolution, but only those who had properly prepared themselves would be able to do so. In other words, the idea that only a small number of people would get to live on an eternity was baked into their belief system. Thirdly, authority. People are more likely to trust information from authority figures. Herf and Bonnie, AKA Doe and T, held themselves out as authorities on the Bible, as well as UFOs and terrestrial bodies. Lastly, consensus. People want to do what other people are doing. Many of the people that were recruited into Heaven's Gate were done so by their friends or by someone they trusted. So the feeling that everyone is doing it can be a powerful draw. In March of 1985, Bonnie died from metastatic cancer. She was only 57. Her death was very confusing to the followers because they thought they were going to go up in the UFO together, alive, after their mind and body transformation so why didn't T turn into an alien and go up in a UFO? Great question. This became a big crisis. They had always preached that they would transform into perfect aliens and ascend to heaven. T's death had undermined the metamorphosis process. So Doe was kind of in a pickle How is he supposed to keep the group together and continue his teachings? Well, that summer, he let all of the members go home and visit their families for two weeks. All of them returned to the group except one. In the two weeks the members were gone, Doe came up with a new message. He decided the process was no longer a bodily transformation, it was now a spiritual transformation. He told them they would be exiting their human vehicles, their bodies, and be given a new body in the next level. And just like tea, their human bodies would be left behind. Voila, there it was, the answer. Up to this point, the message had always been on the process. But with this new teaching, his followers' loyalty switched from the message to the messenger, Do. Loyalty to Do. And Do added more rules. This is not unusual. When something like this happens in a cult that totally undermines their belief system, this creates something called cognitive dissonance. This is according to an article published in Psychology Today by Dr. Matthew Sharp in 2020. Cognitive dissidence, according to him, is a state of mind that manifests itself in the tendency to overvalue anything in which we've invested too much. Too much money, too much time, too much emotional energy. Kind of like, I really love this house because I paid a ridiculous amount of money for it. That is cognitive dissonance. So what has that got to do with Heaven's Gate? Well, those followers paid dearly for joining and staying in the cult. That included their life savings, careers, individuality, sexual expression, romantic relationships... They had to give it all up. All seems to me to be crazy to the nth degree, but looking at it through the lens of cognitive dissonance, it makes perfect sense. The members had paid so much that there was no way they could be wrong about their leader and his plan. Only a few long-term members ever left. And it was because they finally saw a chasm between what their leader was saying and what he was actually doing. Sharp also studies the question of how does cult psychology work? He asks the question, how is it possible to persuade human adults to enter a weird cognitive landscape with no basis in reality? to enter a fantasy realm so profound that they will willingly die for whomever has been selected as the local messiah. And that's really the question here that interests me so much. Sharp, who researches forensic cognitive science, believes the answer to how does cult psychology work lies in understanding three specific cognitive cult Dynamics. First, cognitive dissonance, which we just discussed. The second cognitive cult dynamic Sharp sees in such groups is dissociation. Cult beliefs, such as the ones embraced by the members of Heaven's Gate, are extremely bizarre. So, how do these beliefs get started for an individual in the first place? I've explained how Herf became delusional and how Bonnie not only fed into his delusion, but even cultivated it. Like I said, that was easy to understand. They were both seriously ill. But what about the others? Why and how did so many intelligent and seemingly independent people go along with it? What is it in the individual human mind that allows a person to believe in the unreal, in fantasies wherein the rules of logic and evidence are suspended? The answer is dissociation. And lastly, group psychology. The average person who is not ill or under the influence of anyone or anything Meaning they're thinking on their own, would not seriously consider or believe a bizarre idea, such as a UFO hiding behind a comet taking Earthlings to the so called gates of heaven. Not on their own, anyway. But in a group setting, an individual's judgment and reasoning can go up for grabs. And according to Dr. Sharp, and scores of human psychological experiments over many decades, we are nothing if not social creatures. And we have an extreme tendency toward conformity. Like it or not, according to Dr. Sharp, quote, we are deeply desperate to be accepted by our groups and we're willing to avow palpable absurdities to that end. And these tendencies increase dramatically if our group, or cult, has a leader. In 1993, the group re-emerged with an urgency to recruit new followers. After several male members had elected to be castrated to curtail their sexual desires, the group's numbers dwindled to 24
2: Go figure. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee.
0: At the beginning of January 1994, the group made one last push. They sold all of their possessions and set out across the country to hold public meetings and conduct media interviews. 1994 was also the year Doe set in motion the group's future suicide. Next-level followers had always opposed suicide. However, After the 1993 tragedy of the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas, Doe grew increasingly paranoid about government interference. He openly surveyed each next-level member for their thoughts about, quote, laying down our bodies. Doe crafted a new logic whereby those who chose to remain on Earth and reject the promise of eternal life as perfected beings in the next level, were the ones committing the true suicide. Members now saw suicide as merely exiting a world they had long rejected. Then in July of 1995 came the news of the Hale-Bopp comet. Doe declared himself Jesus on earth, In a 1995 internet posting, the cult leader wrote that he was in the same position in today's society as Jesus was in his. Doe's online post was titled, Undercover Jesus Surfaces Before Departure. Many people suffering from a psychotic delusion as Doe was eventually develop a religious ideation to their delusion. I believe Doe really thought he was Jesus Christ. When the media found Rio D'Angelo, he said he would miss his friends but still believed in the group's mission. He believed that Doe was an honest, caring leader who was trying to help members shed their human containers for a voyage to a higher existence. However, a month prior to the suicides, D'Angelo developed a feeling that he was meant to leave the group and become a messenger to the world. He approached Doe, who agreed that the universe must be communicating this message to D'Angelo. Like D'Angelo, there were a handful of former Heaven's Gate members who came forward to say that the media was misrepresenting the group. Sadly, two more members committed suicide because they wanted to join their brothers and sisters in their celestial home. The Heaven's Gate leader, Marshall Herf Applewhite, was, by all accounts, very charismatic and likable. And his followers believed he was chosen by God to ascend into heaven with his followers in tow. Committing suicide or killing other people to conform to and obey a charismatic leader has happened many times in world history. Could it happen to you? Maybe, but probably not. We are a conformist species, but we can also think for ourselves, and we can resist the impulses that drive cult behavior. Not everyone that was exposed to the Heaven's Gate cult joined. Some of them joined, but after a year or two said, thanks but no thanks. Were they lucky, or... Just independent thinkers. We've had over a hundred episodes of Killer Psyche, thanks to you listeners. In almost every one, I have focused on the killer, explaining the motivations, the behaviors. It's all about the killer. It was very important for me to do this story for you. I think it's critically important that we understand why we behave, why we behave. Being swept up in a suicidal cult ended the lives of 38 young people. Don't let it happen to you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. From Wondery and Treefort Media, this is Killer Psyche. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Director of research is Ann Liu. Mix and sound design by Joshua Morales. Supervising audio producer, Maxwell Carney. Head of audio, Tom Monahan. With audio assistance from Katie Corpy and Matt Dyson. Editorial support, Alexander McCall. Host support from Allison Sandler. Renee Levesque is our production manager. Jada Williams is our production coordinator. Oscar Guido is the producer from Treefort Media. From Amazon Music and Wondery, producer is Stephanie Wachnien. And the co-executive producer is Julie Burke. Lastly, our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort and Marshall Louie and Erin O'Flaherty for Wondery. This series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media.